All right. Well, welcome, everybody. It is very good to see you. Welcome to those of you who are at home. We are upping the technological input today with the addition of a whiteboard. Thank you, please. We're, we're here all week. Uh, seriously, we've, um, uh, I, I want us to have a look at this um, later on today. But uh, more importantly than that, you should all have a paper version of one of these which says the covenant with Abraham at the top of it. And uh, those of you who are at home, a warm welcome to you to our Bible study this evening. I'm conscious also, and I should mention this, that as well as occasionally being blessed with visitors here in the church, we are also wonderfully blessed on occasion with people who get the, YouTube, the uh, Zoom link from some illicit source that propagated outside the... Um, Congregation and they listen in to us, which is absolutely fine. Um, <laughs> well, within within limits, all right. So if that's you, you're most welcome as well. It's great to see. You. Um, I hope you'll feel welcome to contribute and so on uh, as you're able. And uh, Uriah, who is on tech this evening, will I trust wave his arm at me and uh, relay your questions to me if you have any. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we will jump straight in this evening. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for all your abundant goodness to us. Thank you for shaping the whole of human history in such a way that Christ is glorified and we are somehow, by your grace, included in what you're doing in the world. We give you thanks for that, recognizing that it's only by your grace that we are folded into those purposes as they unfold during history. Please would you help us now to Keep tabs on all the things we've been thinking about so that we're able to add another piece to the jigsaw puzzle and build up this picture of what you're doing in the world, what you're doing in history, and so come to understand your ways and your purposes for us and our own present and future better. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just a recap. We are studying Christian eschatology, which is rightly understood as the doctrine of what? Come on. History, thank you. It's sometimes misunderstood to mean what? The end times. With some justification, because the Greek word eschatos means last or final, and eschatology in many systematic theologies really focuses around events in our future. But even in those uh, good theologies that focus there, they clarify and highlight that everything we know about the future has to be built on the past because God is telling a single coherent story throughout the whole of history. Think of him as a novelist who's writing a book, but the book is all the things that actually happen. History is the story that God is telling by being sovereign over all of creation. So then you can start to see the connections between eschatology and the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of God's providence or sovereignty over history and so on and so forth. And so in the Four sessions we've had so far. First, we clarified in the first session that all of history is a revelation of the character of God. So that the shape that history takes somehow mirrors God in the same way that created things mirror God, which was the subject really of the second session when we looked in Genesis chapter 1 at the descriptions there of what God made and how he made those things. And what we noticed is that the symbolic associations of all those things that are mentioned in Genesis 1 
connect to scriptural stories that tell a tremendously positive, unfolding story of history. God is in the process of um, filling the earth with people who know and love him and of discipling and harvesting people throughout all the world, session two. Session three, we then started to look at the covenant or relationship that God established with Adam and Eve in the garden. The first people, God uh, committed himself to them, and that really is the beginning of the, the narrative of history proper. And really what we're embarking on at that point is the study of what theologians sometimes call covenant theology, which is just simply the analysis of how God's covenants or relationships with his people unfold through history. Then in the fourth session, which was last week, we went, not Adam, Noah, the next really significant figure. And one of the things I wanted to emphasize with you, uh, to you is that that history displays, oops, um, <laughs> is, uh, if you keep your feet under the table, then it won't be fine. Um, th- those of you who are just uh, at home who just made dizzy by um, <laughs> the camera being kicked, is, uh, please do not adjust your set. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, uh, it's, it's okay, because we can probably turn the stand around if it needs to be. You're okay. Do I need to move it? No, you don't need to move it. You need to just not move at all. And, oh, I see. You, see, you see the issue. It was, your, it was you that did it, nobody else. Anyway, sorry to make you feel self-conscious. It couldn't happen to a nicer man. Uh, anyway, so, so Noah, what happens in the days of Noah is that the Lord picks up all the th- many of the threads of the story of his relationship with Adam and develops them. So this important theme of continuity with development that um, you see. Actually, we're going to see more of it tonight. And really what you're seeing is an expanding vision of God being committed to bless all his people. And in the, the account of uh, Noah, you saw some aspects of that relationship that God established with his people in the days of Noah, like uh, God's plan to redeem his people from sin recognizes family relationships. God doesn't just take Noah into the ark and say, leave your wife and kids behind. He takes all eight of them in. We saw that God is graciously committed to preserving even sinful society so as to give people time to repent and trust in Christ. We saw his aim really to uh, meet the redemptive need of all people, um, the, the, the scriptures kind of pick up the thread of the uh, narrative of Noah in Second Peter 3, for example, and make that point clear. And then we saw something we're going to see more of today, that God, so to speak, ratifies or confirms his covenant relationship with his people by means of signs that he establishes. And these signs take various forms. At different stages of the unfolding relationship of God with his people the sign is a different sign. And there are really good reasons for that because the character of the sign has something to tell us about the character of the relationship. And so in the days of Noah, it's God's battle bow, the rainbow, which is hung on the wall. God isn't aiming it downwards at humanity, but it's hung on the wall within reach. And I suggested right at the end of last week, it's a little like God sits down across a table with all humanity and removes his sword from its scabbard and places it on the table between them and then says, okay, let's talk about your faithfulness, shall we? (laughs) The point being, we're not messing around with God. He's done it once before and the rainbow says he won't destroy the world through water again. But he could put an end to individual rebellious people and has done many times during history. So that's where we get to. Now, the next chapter in the story, of course, is Abraham. And your handouts highlight this. There are four 
really significant passages involving Abraham at the, in the sense that he is the next archetypal figure through whom God develops the relationship with humanity to its next stage. Genesis 12, 15, 17, 22. My plan today, sometime between now and midnight, is to get to the end of Genesis 22 and to show you what God is doing. And you'll see, again, some continuities with Adam and Noah. But you'll also see some developments. And what, so you can see God is looking down on humanity, this organically growing community of people through history, and he's working in, in a developing way to redeem them. So with that in mind, I want to, to turn to Genesis 12, and just to remind you where we are in the narrative of Scripture. Basically, the first 11 chapters of Scripture, they're sometimes called the primeval history, though I don't really like that term too much because what it suggests is that they're not really kind of proper history, which is indeed how many scholars regard them. They regard Genesis 12 onwards as at least having some basis in historical reality, but anything before that is a bit crackers, really. Uh, I'll give you uh, one guess what I think of that kind of scholarship. Thank you. Right. So um, really what um, is not to say that it doesn't contain poetic and literary material, but it's historical. It purports to be historical. It's not, it, there's not a break in chapter 12 that says, right, this is where we need to get serious about what actually happened. That's not what it says. But up to Genesis 11, you've got Adam and his offspring. That doesn't go so well. And then you've got um, Noah... And the human race shrinks down again to those eight people. And then it starts to grow again. And it grows pretty badly. And the climax of the badness is found really in... There's some good things, but the climax of of it going wrong is in chapter 11, where um, the whole earth had one language and one speech, and they settled in this plain in Shinar. And they said, verse 3, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they made this tower they said verse 4 come let us build ourselves a city with a, and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth now what are we to make of this well it seems that the lord interprets this as a self-important and self-aggrandizing gesture of defiance and pride we're going to build a tower with its top in the heavens so that we will be established we will make a name for ourselves. We won't be scattered. There's a kind of ungodly unity for which the nations of the world are striving, which is rep- represented by this tower, the Tower of Babel, or Babel, as we say on this side of the pond. <laughs> Work with me. I'm trying to learn the language. And you can see the Lord's response to this in verse 5. Listen to the irony. They've built this huge tower. And the Lord came down <laughs> to see the city and the tower that the people had built. And he actually acts in judgment against them, confusing their language and scattering them so as to disunite them. And that scattering is very interesting because what it suggests is that to be scattered and disunited is a manifestation of divine judgment against the pride and insolent self-importance of men and women who think that they don't need God and they can get to him by themselves if they wanted him. And they are able by themselves to establish themselves and make a name for for themselves. And so you've got this picture at the end of Genesis 11 of 
a scattered and divided and sinful, rebellious humanity. And you're asking yourself, what's God going to do? Now, last time, what he did was to wipe everybody out apart from eight people and start again with Noah. This time, he does something different. Bear with me. I woke up this morning with a sore throat and discovered by the middle of the afternoon that it's not anything that I'm ill with. It's allergies, because I took one of Pastor Shaw's allergy tablets, which made me feel like my throat's fine now, but now I'm feeling a bit sleepy, because I don't know what's in those tablets. But <laughs> anyway, so my throat needs a bit of lubrication. So, so, so if, we, if God's going to repeat the same pattern, then what is he going to do? He's going to find somebody, obliterate everybody else, and start again. But he doesn't do that. What he does is he leaves everybody there. This growing mass of humanity, whom he has committed to preserve in Genesis 6 through 9, Genesis 9 particularly, the covenant with Noah. But he chooses one man in the midst of that humanity, a little island of uh, relationship with God in an ocean, a turbulent ocean of rebellious and disunited and God-hating people. And he says, right, from you, this one man, I'm... I'm going to build again. I'm going to start again. And through you, I'm going to reach the whole world. Now, we'll just pause there a second. That really is the story of the rest of the Bible. It is no exaggeration to say that the whole of the rest of the Bible is the story of the fulfillment of the three verses we're about to read. Absolutely everything else can in some way be connected to Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Let's read it with that in mind and you'll see why. Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, now who's Abram? He's not just popped out of nowhere. He's introduced in the previous couple of paragraphs, which are another genealogy uh, flowing from Shem. So Shem, Ham and Japheth. Remember the three sons of Noah? You've got... You've got Noah, then Shem, Ham, Japheth. Shem's descendants traced all the way down to Terah, 11.26. Terah had lived 70 years. He fathered Abram, Nahor, and, and Haran. Then you've got um, Terah, and th- those relationships are kind of introduced again. And, and it focuses in, in on Abram, who by now is in uh, the land that I will... Well, no, he's not quite there yet. Let me read the text and don't get ahead of myself. Now, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice, if you would, God makes a threefold promise. In these verses, you see the scenario? He just meets with Abraham and he talks to him, says, listen, I want you to do something. Where's he supposed to go? Yeah, go go to a land I'm going to show you. First element of the promise. You see that big box in the middle of the page about a quarter of the way down? That is the story of the Bible. Okay, And that is what God promises Abraham. In red, the first promise is, Go to the land I will show you. I'm going to give you a place to live. If you're going to be my people, you're going to need to live somewhere. turns out that the place that Abraham's descendants lived was very important. It's called in Scripture the land of Canaan. It's where Abraham's descendants and a whole bunch of other people, the people of Israel, 
so named because Jacob's grandson, Abraham, Abraham's grandson, Abraham Isaac Jacob, Jacob was renamed Israel, and he had 12 sons, which became roughly the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the land in which they lived was named the land of Israel. Like the land of Jacob is the land of the descendants of Jacob, who was called Israel. But it's actually called Canaan. Go to the land, I will show you. Land. And what does he say next? Verse 2. I will make of you a great nation. Notice. I will make of you a great nation. You can see the hint of a contrast with Genesis 11, can't you? Rather than we nations will make ourselves great and establish ourselves as unassailable, the Lord says, I will make of you a great nation. The second element to this promise in blue, you can see the little table on here. I, I felt a diagram coming on and I thought I'd better get the whiteboard. God promised to make them a great people. And then third... I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. You see the third element of the promise. I'm going to give you a land to live. I'm going to make of you a great nation. The implication being that he's going to have lots of kids. And I'm going to bless you. Now just stop there for a second. You can see certainly echoes of... Adam, can't you? I will bless you. Think of the connections you've got to previous covenants. Look, working through these bullet points, and we're going to come back to that square box, that rectangular box in a second, but just the next bullet point down. Notice the connections already to previous covenants. I will bless you, is what God promised Adam, is what God promised Noah and his offspring. Back to that box. This promised land, quote, promised land, land of promise, was not just to be for Abraham's offspring. The blessing also wasn't just for them. Look at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so to summarize that, those three verses, you could do it like, um, I've done in that grey box. Okay. God promises to Abraham a land in which to live, many descendants who will come from him, and God's blessing to them. And that blessing will somehow be mediated to the whole world. See? In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Can you see how that diagram works? Land, people, blessing, and then there's a kind of like squirrely arrow to the world. The purpose of human history... The, the reason why God met with Abraham to speak with him was to bring a community of people to a place where they could live, enjoy God's blessing, and then share that blessing with the world. That's what human history is about. And just think of a, uh, another couple of connections. Again, connections backwards to Adam you remember that Adam and Eve were placed in a particular location, weren't they, in the Garden of Eden? There's a special location that the Lord has set around. It's the place where that blessing is going to be. So when they're sent away from that place, that's synonymous with the blessing being withdrawn. Similarly, Noah. Noah, it's different. Instead of being given a little garden, it's like, well, you've got the world now, Noah. 
best of luck, as Calvin wouldn't have said. It's, but the place is still important. And here, again, in keeping with the fact that it's a small sub-community of the world's population, one person at this time, it's also a small subset of the world's geography that's going to be theirs, this place. Now, you with me so far? So we've done the first couple of bullet points. This threefold promise to Abraham, which I want to suggest, and this is not just me, this is many people, including this guy, um, uh, Dennis Alexander, T. Dennis Alexander, T.D. Alexander, little uh, little book, I mean, uh, 300 and something pages, From Paradise to Promised Land. It's quite a good book. It's quite long, but it's readable, and it really uh, expounds the significance of Genesis 12, 1 to 3 in the context of the first five books of the Bible, from paradise, Genesis 1, to the promised land, right at the beginning of the book of Joshua, really. So it's the, an introduction to the Pentateuch is the subtitle. He makes exactly the same point. I'm not making this up. It's not only in the Bible, it's also in Alexander's book, Paradise Promised Land. Um, now, what's really intriguing is then when you start to think about the shape of the Bible as it unfolds. Hands up if you heard the, the word Pentateuch before, before tonight. You heard that word before? Okay, so some of you heard it. It comes from the word um, penta, meaning five, the five books. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are sometimes called the Pentateuch. You might hear that word, in, read it in books and so on, hear people talking about it. What's absolutely fascinating is that in those first five books, you see the first installment of the fulfillment of these promises. Land, people, blessing for the world. You see it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I want to show you, and you can fill it in on your little table down there. So I've got my three colored pens, and I need to hold this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. Hold on. Just think for a second. The camera probably can't pick me up. I'll come over here. And then you'll at least know I'm here if you're at home. Think of the story of the book of Genesis. What happens in the book of Genesis? From Genesis 12 onwards, how many men have you got who are within the people of God? Family. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, how many people are there who are within the community of the people of God? One. One. Abraham. Genesis. Genesis. Sorry, Genesis 12. My apologies. If I said Genesis 1, then you're all looking there baffled. For, I mean, it's my fault, not yours. Right. Um, Genesis 12, you've got one guy. Remember I said the Lord's going to start with one man. The story of the rest of the book of Genesis is the story of God fulfilling that promise to give to him many descendants of people in spite of all the odds. Now you can shade it in like this. See Genesis up here? The book of Genesis is basically all about the people part of the promise. So we can do that. And it's, it's against the odds, because if you think about it, what happens, the first thing that Abraham does is to give his wife away to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, which isn't a particularly smart thing to do if what you're planning to do is to populate the world with your descendants. Um, 
also rolled into the story, of course, his first is his wife's barrenness. She's unable to have children. Um, there's famine everywhere. Not a great thing if you're trying to raise a family. And so Abraham struggles against his own foolishness and weakness and sin and also his own physical and his wife's physical limitations. But God overcomes those limitations anyway. And by the end of the book of Genesis, we've got Abraham, Isaac, some of the same problems again, some replays they look like of the same kinds of narratives. Jacob, Jacob is the first guy who doesn't seem to have problem fathering children. And he has 12 children. By the end of the book of Genesis, well, they, it's kind of, yeah, um, the 12 brothers were 11 of the brothers initially, because Joseph at this point is the youngest in uh, Genesis 37. What do the other brothers do to, to Joseph? Remember what they do? They put him in a well. Yeah, they throw him in a, in a pit. Before that, they were planning to do what to him? Kill him. Kill him. Another great idea if you're planning to populate the world. You see, what's happening in the book of Genesis is that everything that people do seems to be pushing against God's plan, but God is fulfilling it anyway. And so, in the peculiar providence of God, what happens in Genesis 37 through 50 is that the brothers start out wanting to kill their brother or get rid of their brother, and then they think, let's sell him, and there's all that kind of palaver with Reuben standing up for him and stuff. So they sell him, and he becomes, he goes to Egypt, and he ends up in prison in Egypt, but then he kind of somehow finds his way out of prison. You remember the story. And... When he is exalted to a high position of political importance in Egypt after his release, he's then in a position to provide food for his family so that they don't starve to death in Canaan, where there's another famine. So in God's weird providence, all the wickedness and sin of the sons of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Twelve, is somehow turned to God's good purposes. In Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph is with his brothers again, and he says... Um, you meant to harm me, you meant to do evil, but God meant it for good. So Genesis is a story of God's triumph over human weakness and evil to fulfill this promise, Genesis, people. Now, next book, Exodus. What's the first thing that happens in the book of Exodus? Pharaoh's trying to kill everybody. Pharaoh's trying to kill everybody again. Obviously, because the the ruler of the nations of the world, the great nation of Egypt, is going to be opposed to the plan of God. Why is he trying to kill everybody? Why is he trying to kill all the um, uh, Israelites? Remember what's happened in the meantime? Because Joseph was like friend of the of the, the uh, Egyptian pharaoh. Yeah, Mrs. Clackhorn. Right, they've grown too numerous, and there's something else has happened. The f- They've grown too strong, yeah, but that wouldn't be a problem, surely, because Pharaoh loves Joseph and his brothers and their descendants because they saved his life and his people's, uh, they saved his people from the famine, didn't they? He's a, he's a new ruler. Isn't he afraid that if, if yeah. other people attack them, the Jews will go with the enemy? Exactly, exactly. There's a new king in town. Another, n- another king became king of Egypt who didn't know about Joseph. And he only sees, in Exodus chapter 1, and he only sees him as a threat. And if, if, some, if war breaks out, they're going to join our enemies and fight against us, and there's like a million of them. We can't be doing with that. And so what actually happens in the first seven verses of Exodus, the people grow in number from 70 to a great multitude. So this extends over here a little bit, past the, the boundary between the two books. And then you've got this battle with Pharaoh trying to wipe out the people again and the Lord trying to sustain them. What's the next big thing that happens in Exodus? 
The first half of the book of Exodus basically is about this. Moses, what does Moses do? Leaving Egypt. Leaving Egypt. And, we, and you remember the story, plagues and um, uh, let my people go and all that kind of thing. What's the point? The purpose is to get them out of Egypt into their own land. The promised land. We've got to get to the promised land. And all the way through to about Genesis 15 or so, the Song of Moses, it's basically a journey. Well, no, it's not. A, there's a bunch of plagues as well. But, but the purpose of everything is to move them out of Egypt and they get stuck in the wilderness. Then what happens in the wilderness? Uh, be- before the golden calf. Something quite, Ten Commandments. Something quite big in the, book, in the middle of the book of Exodus. Ten Commandments. What's all that about? Is it about getting them to the right land? Is it about multiplying the people? Right, it's, it's the blessing thing. What the Lord says is, right, now I've redeemed you from slavery in Egypt. What I want to do now is to show you how to live, to enjoy my blessing from this time forward. And so he assembles them at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, gives them the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, and then expounds the Ten Commandments, basically. And gives them a whole bunch of other regulations which have to do with the tabernacle. There's a huge chunk of the um, second half of the book of Exodus, which is all about the place where they're going to meet with God and encounter him and enjoy his... Does anybody work for a company that makes decent pens? Right. Enjoy his... Okay. I give up. Enjoy his blessing. There we are. I had it all planned, all colours and everything. And now it's really just going to be terrible. So the book of Exodus... Is the second half of it is basically a bunch of we think of them as laws. In in Hebrew, the word is Torah. Do you know what Torah means? Mm, it's translated law sometimes, but instruction. Yeah, Mr. Bennett, instruction or teaching. The the tone of it is it does have some laws like don't kill each other. Well, that's a yeah, that's a really good law. But the Torah includes the description, the narrative of God's kindness in preserving his people. And really the word means something more like instruction. And it carries on through the second half of the book of Exodus. And at the end of the book of Exodus, they've had all these laws, they've built the tabernacle, and they're all kind of hanging around outside it, and they're wondering, what do we do next? And they can't go into the tabernacle because the presence of the Lord is there. You get to Exodus chapter 40, and and the, the cloud descends on the tabernacle, they can't go in. So now they're like, well, now what do we do? And you keep, you just read on. You read on to the beginning of the next book. And the very first word of the book of Leviticus is the word, and he called. That is, the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. He said, hey, come over here. (laughs) The reason you can't come in is you haven't brought any sacrifices with you, silly. When you come to the tent of meeting, bring a sacrifice with you. Oh, you'll need some instructions on that. Seven chapters. Um, get some priests. A couple more chapters. Um, here's how to worship me. Chapter 10. And then there's a bunch of other laws which are to do with how to continue to enjoy God's blessing as his people. Notice again what we're learning here about the relationship between God's redeeming grace and God's moral instruction. Of course the Bible is full of moral instruction. He tells us to do this and not do that, and it's best for us to obey him. He commands us to behave in certain ways. 
But what he never does is say, right, you guys can stay in Egypt till you've got yourself sorted out and you're really righteous and then I'll set you free. And you see, grace precedes ethical imperatives. Always, always, always. If anybody ever says to you, well, in the Old Testament, people were saved by obeying the law and now we're saved by grace. Please run screaming from the room, saying something like life, life, eternal life, which you'll find somewhere else. The relationship between God's grace and God's ethical imperatives is always that relationship. God graciously liberates those people who, like us, deserve nothing but judgment. And then he says, look, this is not how to live to please me. Here's how to live to please me. And actually, that living is our faithfulness, which reflects our faith in him, our trust in him. So Leviticus is all about that. Numbers, then what? What's numbers about? Don't say numbers, please. What do they do in the book of Numbers? They whinge and complain, yeah, whine and moan. They, I said whinge once in a sermon at All Saints, and um, nobody knew what I was talking about. You, you said it. you kind of anglophile, really, aren't you? To whine. To whine. They moaned and complained about all their misfortunes on their journey to the promised land. Beginning of the book of Numbers, they're still at Mount Sinai. End of the book of Numbers, they're in the, uh, the border of Moab in the, um, on the, I'm not going to get it right, east side of the River Jordan waiting to cross over and enter the promised land. It's on the way to the promised land. And there's been some stuff happened on the way, which means that most of that generation aren't allowed to enter because of their sin and rebellion. Because they said, we want to go back to Egypt because they've got cucumbers and melons and garlic and stuff. Which you'd think they'd be able to get their priorities right. But anyway, they, so the Lord... Um, oh, and also, they didn't believe that the Lord could bring them into the promised land. They sent the spies in, and the spies came back and said, the land is wonderful, but... Oh, it's the, the big people there are too big, too dangerous. God can't possibly defeat them. So the Lord says, well, if that's your attitude, you can stay in the wilderness and die here and I'll take the next generation in. So they're in the, the um, east side of the River Jordan in the hills of Moab overlooking the, the land of Canaan. Beautiful scene, the valley of the Jordan in the hills on the other side. They could probably see the, the cluster of hills on which, of which where Jerusalem was built, Mount of Olives, and where Jerusalem was actually built just west of that um, near Mount Moriah. Um, and they're waiting for Moses to die. They can't go in until he's dead, because he's one of that generation. And he lives to be 120, <laughs> which is darned inconvenient when you're in a hurry. But anyway, um, so, and what is he going to do? Well, what's a preacher going to do if he's got nothing else? He's got time on his hands. So he just preaches a bunch of sermons. He says, listen, when you get over into the land, well, no, first he says, let's just remember where you came from. The first four chapters are just about remembering where you came from. And the word remember is quite prominent in Deuteronomy. And so... Uh, he says, just remember where you came from. Then he gives them the Ten Commandments again. Then he expounds the Ten Commandments again, because preachers got to preach, you see. Um, he expounds them with special relevance to the life they're going to have in the land, so that they know how to live to experience God's blessing. You see, that's how the, the Pentateuch shapes up. It is the initial fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And by the time it's over, they are ready to cross over into the promised land. And the next book is called what? Joshua. Joshua, yeah. And the book of, you know what the book of Joshua is about? Because I just spent about 40 hours explaining it to you in sermons in, on Sunday morning. So um, it's all about the conquest of the land. 
After the death of Moses, the Lord said to Joshua, get up, come on, you've got work to do. And so they did. So can you see what's happening? The whole of the rest of the Pentateuch into the book of Joshua is about the fulfillment of this promise. Let me pause there a second. And what we're going to do in a moment uh, is uh, we're going to look at some uh, more details of that. There's one more bullet point to, to be aware of. And then we're going to look at 15, 17, and 22. But let me pause. Any questions so far? Yeah, Uriah, please. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I'll happily explain that again. Somebody else want to have a go at explaining it, actually? Let's have another crack at it. Uriah need, needs me to, somebody to explain that again. Or is it somebody online? No, it's me. Okay. Did I do such a bad job that nobody has a clue what I'm talking about? Okay, let me, let me try. Um, I believe what you were trying to get at is that even in the Old Testament, God was saving by grace. Right. And, and even in the New Testament, we do need to abide by the blessing structure that God gave in the old law. Right, very good. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, now with, a, with a slight tweak, that the way we keep the, the, the law is different under the New Covenant. Let me put the point more simply, as if I can. The relationship between God's redeeming grace and our response of obedience is always the same at every part of the Bible, Old Testament and New. And it's always God's grace precedes. He gives us ethical norms as a blessing and our faithfulness to those norms follows as a consequence of his grace being at work in us. It's never like the caricature sometimes goes in some circles, and maybe you've never encountered it, never encountered it, in which case, praise God. But where people say, in the Old Testament, people are saved by their obedience to Moses' law. In the New Testament, we're saved by the grace of Christ through faith. It's always grace through faith which leads to and creates this response of obedient faithfulness. That's, does that make sense? Thank you for highlighting that. Um, um, so let me say one more thing then about that response of obedient faithfulness because if we dig into a few different bits of this narrative I've shown you it sheds some light on this little arrow in the box let me just hold this up and maybe you guys at home can see it you see the box at the top and you've got uh, land people blessing and then you've got this little arrow thing that scoops up the land people blessing and points it towards the whole world so you might reasonably ask the question well how on earth does the blessing of Abraham get to the whole world there's a hint actually in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 or verse 2 um well, no, verse 3, really. I'll, end of verse 2 is, I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. Then verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever dishonors you I will curse. And through you all the families of the earth will find blessing or shall be blessed. So what have you got to do? If you want to enjoy the blessing that God promised to Abraham, you've got to, quote-unquote, 
bless Abraham. What does that mean? It seems that it's supposed to mean something like, you'd come to the children of Abraham, or to Abraham himself, and you'd say, wow, the the Lord has blessed you. Uh, I Hats off to you, kind of thing. Uh, You'd recognize that this is a community that has been blessed by the Lord, and you'd ascribe blessing to them. And you find something very much like it, actually, in Genesis 14, when the first person ever to say, blessed be Abraham, is who? Melchizedek. Melchizedek. There's your favorite guy. You want to talk about Okay. So Melchizedek, and we're not going to go into Melchizedek narrative because we will be here for quite a long time. Um, Melchizedek, after Abraham has defeated all the kings that were taking his cousin captive and stuff, um, nephew, sorry, um, uh, he's got all this plunder. He gives a tithe of it to the priest king of Jerusalem, and the priest king of Jerusalem brings out bread and wine. Now look, come on. Does that remind you of anything? You know, um, the sons of Abraham bring tithes to the priest king of Jerusalem, who then brings them bread and wine and invites them to eat at his table. It looks a little bit like another Melchizedekian priest, doesn't it? Right? It's what Jesus does. We bring our tithes to Jesus, and Jesus brings forth bread and wine for us, the the seed of Abraham. Um, But more broadly, the question has to be asked, all right, well, why would anybody do that? Why would anybody do that? And I want to skip Exodus 19. We'll just go to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we get a hint of it. Remember, this is in... Where are we? Deuteronomy 4 is right here. It's in the long bunch of sermons that Moses preaches when he's explaining how the Ten Commandments and all that stuff applies in the land they're going to. And as part of his kind of introduction to the sermon, which is four chapters long, he says, chapter 4, verse 8, verse 5, sorry, see, look, behold, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So you've got to go into the land, you've got to do what you're told by the Lord having been redeemed, remember, grace, and then faithfulness to the Lord. Verse 6, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Can you see what he's saying? If you keep these laws, the people will realize that you're a wise people. And they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. That's to bless them. You know, this, this nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? See, what they'll do is they'll come to these nations who are kind of wandering through Israel. People will sort of see the righteousness of the community and they'll see there's this big temple built in the heart of the capital city and they'll say, this is amazing. They look after widows and stuff. And they... They administer justice to the poor and they don't show partiality in court. And their God is like present with them and is, he's looking after them and they can approach him and worship him and eat food that's been sacrificed in his temple. So they're kind of eating with him. What a wonderful 
God they must have. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as this law I set before you today? We've been through all the world on our travels around the Fertile Crescent, all these tradesmen will say, and we've never found a place like this. And that's going to happen if the people of Israel are faithful. If they're morally faithful in their daily lives, so their godliness stands out above that of the surrounding peoples, and if they're faithful in worship, so that the surrounding nations do indeed see that their God is close to them in the sanctuary that they built for him. And it's interesting, in God's providence, the location of Canaan, the land where Israel was established, is on the so-called Fertile Crescent. And if you remember your geography, basically, if you want to get from um, North Africa to Asia, you have to sort of travel through, more or less tracing the route of the exodus and you go um, along the southern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and you could keep going except there's a massive desert in the way so what you have to do is you, you have to go up the eastern coast of the Mediterranean through this narrow strip of land where there's a river that flows so there's water there and that river is called the Jordan Go any further west than that, sorry, east than that, I knew I'd make a mistake eventually. Go any further east than that, you've got desert, you can't really cross that. So you have to go round and up, and then you get to Syria, and then you can turn east again, and you can go east and sort of south down um, the Tigris and Euphrates river valleys. That whole sweep up, I'll do it this way around. Um, no, I won't, I'll do it this way around. So up the Mediterranean coast like this, Syria, then you go east and then you can start going down and you can go to India and China and Tajikistan and Tibet and all those wild places out there that's called the Fertile Crescent and this narrow strip of land, 20 miles wide you have to go through it if you want to get from anywhere in Africa to anywhere in East Asia what a great opportunity for all the nations to see your righteousness And so it's understandable that by the time Solomon's temple is established and his throne and his palace are established in 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba should hear, no doubt from some of her travelling tradesmen and um, uh, explorers, that this is an amazing nation. You've got to go and see this. And the king is just, he's unreal. He's so wise. He's like spoken a thousand and something proverbs and he writes songs and he's... His dad used to play the harp and he wrote a bunch of songs. It's amazing. Go and see him. So she goes to see him in 1 Kings 10. I won't read it. But she says, like, I, the, everyone said how amazing you were, but they didn't tell me the half of it. Um, your wisdom surpasses everything I'd heard. How happy your men must be that the Lord has seen, to fit, to, seen fit to place you on the throne of Israel. You know, is there any kind of way that we could kind of worship the Lord? And of course the answer is yes. Um, as another somewhat uh, more lowly woman found out a a few hundred years before, when she uh, was brought back by her mother-in-law from the land of Moab, where she'd married a guy, an Israelite guy, who then died. And so she came back to the land of Israel. And, you know, it's in famine time, it's in the judges' time, it's not a great time to be in Israel. But she's able to go out and glean in the fields because the laws of Israel require that gleaners be looked after. And so she experiences the goodness of the law of God and ends up marrying the rich landowner of the farm that she's working on. Remember her name? Ruth. Ruth. So Ruth, the Moabitess, who becomes one of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, 
finds her way into Israel because somebody, at least one guy in Israel, Boaz, is doing Deuteronomy 4 verses 5 through 8 and making sure all his staff do the same. So can you see how this is supposed to work? Now there's some obvious practical implications to that because, goodness, if the world can only be blessed through faithful sons and daughters of Abraham, that might imply that the future growth of the kingdom of Christ would depend extremely heavily on the godliness of people like you and me. If people meet you and you are the most cheerful, conscientious, hardworking, humble, gracious member of staff in your office or student at your college or employee at whichever place you work at, there's just a chance they might say, well, there's something about you. Um, Why don't you fiddle your taxes like everybody else? (laughs) Um, Maybe there's just a chance. But if we're indistinguishable from or worse than the rest of the world, don't be surprised if the church stagnates and doesn't grow. Because the way the Lord has designed the world to work is that he uses the instrument of the faithfulness of his people to accomplish his purposes. So Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 8, is a a very, very sobering text to reflect on. Um, And you almost want to say, look, if if the world doesn't acknowledge the the godliness of the church, um, well, shame on us. Now, our temptation is to blame the world, you see, isn't it? Oh, our civil rulers and, and oh, our local government officials and so on. And Yeah, I don't want to absolve people who have responsibility from responsibility, but doesn't judgment begin at the household of God? Isn't there a certain sense in which we want to say, somewhere along the line, this is on us. And it's our responsibility to be faithful in demonstrating the goodness of the Lord. Right, you with me? All right. Let me pause again. Any, does that make sense? Any questions about that? Any, anything you want to probe a bit deeper? Or we'll move on. Uh, Uriah, and then we'll come to uh, Mr. Youngblood. Yeah. You're reading one. Well, now I'm not sure if I should read it. <laughs> Have a think about it. I'll come back in a second. Tim, yeah. But Moses is on the east side of the Jordan. Can't cross the Jordan. Yeah, that's right. He's looking over the valley and sees the hills. Yeah. The promised land. Abram, before then, yeah. has taken his cousins, nephews, and family mm-hmm. yeah. into the promised land. Correct. To Jerusalem, which became Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Son, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So he's in the promised land. Yeah. Um, and, and then, in the end, uh, he... Yeah, there's a bunch of moving around they do with sure, him and yes. Lot. And, 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 but, but by the end of the book of Genesis, they're all down in Egypt because of the famine. Um, all right. Um, now, what I want to do, Genesis 15, 17, and 21, we're not going to spend so much time on them, so don't worry. Don't worry. We'll get out of here by 18 minutes past, as we usually do. Um, uh, but what, what they do is they zoom in on different aspects of the relationship that God establishes with Abraham. And they highlight different elements of it. And just as we've seen already, if we zoom in on these, 
we'll then be able to pick up themes which will resonate with other stuff that we're going to discover later on. Um, History rhymes, as you're seeing, and the things that God taught Abraham and put in place in the relationship he had with him feature in other ways in his relationship with us subsequently. So let's look at Genesis 15, which is a really, really uh, significant passage, really for understanding two things. First, the place of faith, and then second, the significance of what I've called here covenant rituals. Now let me read this to you. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but this is after the Melchizedek moment in chapter 14. So he's just rescued his, uh, his nephew Lot from the kings who kidnapped him and stuff. And he goes on his way. And then after these things, Genesis 15 verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now why would he say fear not? Um, you see, he seems to think that Abraham might be worried about something. Well, it turns out that he is. Abraham is deeply anxious about something to do with God's promises. And you all know what it is because you've all read this passage a gazillion times before. But Abraham said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Yeah? And the heir of my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Eliezer's a nice chap and everything, but he's not. it looks like your promise isn't working. I thought I was going to have a son. Well, lots of sons, because fill the earth, remember? Echoes of the creation mandate. And Abraham said, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven, number the stars if you can count them. And then he said, that's how many offspring you're going to have. Well, you know why stars, because stars, Genesis 1, Um, the heavenly lights rule the day and the night. Abraham's sons are going to rule with Christ. Daniel 7, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, and so on and so forth. Um, And verse 6, what did Abraham do? He believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. Now this is it's quite hard to find a text that rivals this for understanding the importance of and the nature of faith. What Abraham did was to trust that God was telling the truth even when everything that he could see around him was pointing in the opposite direction. So I've summarised it, verses 1 to 6. Abraham here teaches us to trust God's promises against all the odds. And that's how this passage is referred to later in Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. Um, He didn't weaken in his faith. Even when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He's 86 or 87 years old at this point. Now, some of those New Testament references, they mix together Genesis 15 with Genesis 17, where we're getting to next. But they're basically talking about the same period of Abraham's life, where he's 85, 87 years old, 99 years old in Genesis 17. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, I haven't got a son. And I'm I'm 80-something years old. I mean, my wife is quite old as well. And 
Faith is that disposition which takes God at his word. That is righteousness. You with me? Now, it's very important that you hear me say this, because in the last couple of weeks, you've heard me talk about faith in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, particularly, so a week and a half ago, if you were at All Saints a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you've heard me highlight that the Greek word pistis, which is often translated faith, quite commonly means what? Yeah, faithfulness. It's more like commitment, allegiance, fidelity. Faithfulness means not just believing in your heart, but it means actually doing. You know, the Thessalonians turned to God from idols. They did something. And I, I want to emphasize that at every place the Bible emphasizes it. But here it's very interesting that it, it emphasizes the commitment of the, no, the, the stance of the heart towards the word of God. There is a, an internal, dispositional, what you think is true, believing certain facts aspect of faith. Are you with me? And to be biblical and actually reformed as well, we've got to acknowledge both of these aspects to what faith is. Faith is lived commitment and faith is, yet, yeah, Lord, I trust your words. If you say it's going to happen... I guess I guess it's going to happen. Are you with me? And what's really intriguing is that we sometimes need reminding of this when the word of God doesn't make sense. That many's the pastor who's had numerous conversations with 17-year-old guy and 17-year-old girl in his church to whom certain ethical norms in Scripture just sort of don't make sense to them. They don't really understand why, why does it have to be this way. And in the end, sometimes the pastor has got to say, uh, well, he might say stuff your feelings, I suppose he might. Um, he might also say, yeah, faith is going to be shown if you will take God at his word about the best way to live, even when you don't really understand. You might not understand why the best thing for you to do is to wait till you're older and wait till you're married. But you've got to trust me on this one because you've got to trust the Lord on this one. Are you with me? That's what faith is. And so obviously then it leads to a certain kind of action. That's the first thing we learn from this. The second big thing follows in the next few verses because Abraham says, well, okay. Um, verse 8. O oh Lord God. Oh no, let's take track back a little bit. Uh, verse 7. Um, and he said to him, this is the Lord speaking again. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Ur of the Chaldeans is off in the east somewhere where he used to live. And he says, I'm the one who brought you here, remember, to give you this land. And Abraham now questions that as well. He says, well, okay, how do I know that you're going to give me this? Verse 8, how do I know that I'm to possess it? And what the Lord does is he says, um, okay, you've got to bring me some animals. And then you've got to chop them in half. Abraham's like... Well, obviously, that's what I have to do, isn't it? Because why would, it, why would one do anything else? So he does. Because remember, faith, you just do what you're told. Verse 10, and he brought them, cut them in half, and laid them half over the other half. So he's laying them out like half a heifer, another half a heifer, half a female goat, another half a female goat, another half a ram, half a turtle dove. And there's like, like, a, like a little 
I don't know, <laughs> two lines of corpses. And birds of prey come down because they're hungry. And he's, Aaron, Abram's like, get away. And verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord says some other stuff. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On this day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring I give this land. What's going on? What, what is the purpose? Why didn't the Lord just say, I'm going to give you the land? What does he do with all this silly, chop the animals in half and then have the fire pot drifting between the two of them? Mrs. Clackhorn. Say again. Like a marriage ceremony, yeah. Right? Yeah, I wonder whether there is something of the, um, something of this preserved in marriage ceremonies where um, in our ceremonies the, the bride walks down the aisle. That's not universal worldwide. Yeah, maybe. What, what's happening here is something that is so far removed from our experience that we're very unfamiliar with it. It's actually, it, it's actually fa- found in lots of other ancient texts, including the Bible. Well, it's the fire that walks between the pieces. If I don't keep this, if I don't keep yes. this uh, promise I make to you, you can do to me as regards those examples. Right, that's it. Precisely. If I, the Lord is saying, if I don't keep this promise, you can do to me what we've just done to the animals. It's, it sounds so weird. It's, but actually, it is fundamental to biblical sacrifice and ritual. It's actually central to understanding the Lord's Supper and baptism. And it's to do with what rituals are. Rituals are a, a way of enacting either the blessings of or the curses for covenant relationships. Here, and there's a quotation here from um, Palmer Robertson's book, The Christ of the Covenants. I'm just going to read this, and then you've probably read it already. By dividing animals and passing between the pieces, participants in a covenant pledged themselves to death. These actions involved an oath of self-malediction, so an oath of self-cursing. If they should break the commitment involved in the covenant, they were asking that their own bodies be torn into pieces just as the animals had been divided ceremonially. That's actually what happens in biblical ritual. Other nations of the world pick this up, but I'm convinced it was the people of God in the sense of Noah and Adam, well, uh, Noah and um, Abel, who first... uh, enacted rituals of this kind and then the other nations of the world pick them up one way or another what what happens in sacrifice is you're doing to the animal what ought to happen to you you approach god you ought to be chopped into pieces and set on fire the ritual is a depiction of something that ought to happen to you because if you try and approach god as a covenant breaker you'll be burned up and that of course picks up 
the end of Genesis 3, where what the Lord has done is put a cherubim with a with sword and a fire at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And if you walk past somebody who's got a sword in one hand and fire in the other and he's waving them about, what's going to happen to you? <laughs> you get chopped into pieces and set on fire. So these rituals enact the curses for covenant breaking. And here God is doing something astonishing. He's saying, if I don't keep this promise, Abraham, you can chop me into bits. Because the fire, the smoking fire pot is a symbol of God's own presence. Of course, you get that later, with the Lord's presence being associated with fire. Can you, could, you chop, could you chop God into pieces? Just think about that for a second. How would you, how would you do that? God is a spirit. Yeah, God, God can't be chopped into pieces. He's just not that kind of a being. So what this ceremony is saying is, it's as impossible for me not to give you the land, Abraham, as it is for me to be chopped up. If you think that God can't be chopped in half, and if you're absolutely certain that God can't be chopped in half, you should be absolutely certain you're going to get the land. The Lord is making that promise in the form of this ritual. You with me? And rituals encode what they represent. And this becomes really significant. I hinted at this um, earlier with other rituals. The ritual of baptism, what does it do? It encodes what it represents. What, what, what happens to somebody in baptism? Well, they're washed. They get water poured on them. And the ritual is connected with, in that case, it's the blessing of keeping the covenant rather than the curse for breaking it. Same with the Lord's Supper. What happens at the Lord's Supper? Well, we're fed. And as those who are, well, we eat the bread and we drink the wine, it's like eating Jesus. It's not physically eating Jesus, but there's a, there's a connection between the physical action that we're doing and what it, what it is telling us about our relationship with Christ. Are you with me? Right, now, I want to pause because we've got eight minutes left. And I'm not going to try and do Genesis 17 and 21, so don't worry. We'll come back to that next week because we, it would, we'd rush it and there's loads of cool stuff there. We'll come to that. So I'm going to pause there a second. Let you take stock of what I've said and then see if we've got any questions that pick up those themes. Just notice again, what Genesis 15 is adding to the picture is a centrality of faith, which means trusting God. Even when... There's no way you can do this, Lord. There's absolutely no way. Okay. Well, yeah, there is. And then second, we're being introduced to the way in which rituals work and the fact that God has basically said here, I'm, I'm definitely going to give you this land. You with me? You had your hand up, Evelyn. Go ahead. Why do you think that God uh, performs this ritual as a sign after it says that Abram did believe? Hmm. Yes. And that God gives another. I'm not saying it was like unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think what it is, did you all hear the question? Um, what, why did the Lord give Abraham this sign after he's already, Abraham has already expressed his faith and he's been counted as righteous? I think if you look at the diagram here, it'll help you to see it. And I, I skipped over it too fast. 
in verses 1 to 6, he's expressing doubt about this. In verse 8, he's expressing doubt about the land part of the promise. Can you see? How shall I know that I shall possess it? And so it looks like... um, In one sense, it looks like quite a human encounter, doesn't it? There are different elements to what God has promised. And Abraham is teasing them apart and interrogating them one at a time. What's really intriguing... Another way to ask the question, which highlights what's intriguing about it, is to say, well, why does God count him righteous in the middle when he's not done the thing about the land? Why doesn't the Lord wait till the end? And then his faith is counted as righteousness. I don't know the answer to that. I'm looking at my fellow pastor here. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, Mrs. Rivalin. Yeah. Yes. 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 It it might be. It might just be that. Like that kind of kindness. I, as I think about it now, I'm wondering whether. So, if you look at it in the big picture of the Bible as a whole, the faith in God's promise to bless people readily is picked up in the New Testament as a uh, both a covenant promise to the, the children of believers and also as a promise of blessing to all who have faith. The land element is actually significantly modified because the land of Canaan loses its significance with the destruction of Israel's temple and Israel's unfaithfulness. So it might be that attaching faith just to the people portion makes sense, Evelyn, Um, and the land thing is connected with this particular ritual. I'm I'm not sure. Um, But one of the things we'll start to see later, and we'll get this definitely in Genesis 17, is that there is a very close relationship between faith in the promise and the ritual. And I don't want to um, get ahead of us because we've probably got enough to think about this week. But, um, yeah, uh, Kinda, order. Uh, order. I was thinking about this, but in like, the law, you have the two confirmations, the two witnesses, two Yes. Yes, it might be. So the the two or three witnesses to confirm a in a legal context, isn't it? Maybe. What what's strange is it is that they're so different. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I I've made a little bullet point note, <coughs> verses thirteen to sixteen. There's a connection to the book of Joshua here. Um, why didn't Abraham just go straight into the land immediately? The answer is, verses 13 to 16, your offspring will be sojourners, temporary residents in a land that isn't theirs, land of Egypt. 
and they'll be there 400 years, and then I'll judge that nation, and they'll come out with great possessions. But you're not to go into the land of Canaan yet. Look at verse um, 16. You come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were the people who were then in the land of Canaan. And for Abraham to go in there, or whoever to go in there and drive them out, is a manifestation of God's judgment upon the Amorites. But he says that they've not yet reached the point where that is warranted. It wouldn't be just at this time for them to be driven out of the land. So wait. So that's a really important text for understanding the book of Joshua, and I remember highlighting that for you a number of times. Um, The conquest of the land is, at the same time, God's judgment against the former inhabitants of the land, who here are described as Amorites. So all this kind of weaves together in all these complex ways. Um, And... If I start introducing new ideas now, I'm going to get us in a tangle. Yeah, Pastor Shaw. Do you you think that it's abnormal that God walked through the the kind of part? And do you think that we ought to... Do you think we're reading too much into it to see the the, the cross, the work of Christ in this? I mean, is is it too much of a stretch to say that God is going to guarantee the covenant even though he's not the... He's not the vassal. He's not the, he's not, you know, normally wouldn't it be the Abraham that needs to guarantee the covenant? Yes. Because, you know what? I'm going to guarantee it. It's, yeah. This is going to happen to me. It's fascinating. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, now, you used the word vassal there, right? Okay, three minutes. Um, so, uh, the way that many ancient covenants worked was that you had two parties, one of whom was basically the big cheese, the conquering king, and the other one who was like the little guy. And the technical terms were suzerain and vassal. And so sometimes these are called suzerain-vassal treaties. And there's this huge debate in the Old Testament literature about to what extent the biblical covenants are a bit like suzerain-vassal treaties. And the answer is... It's not that the biblical authors were copying copying the suzerain vassal treaties. What's actually happening is that human cultures are developing with an understanding of how God relates to his people, and they're turning that into suzerain vassal treaties, like in Babylon and so on. Because where everyone's descended from Noah, you know, everyone's descended from Adam, the news has spread about how God does things. But what that means is there probably is some commonality, and... Yet what's happened here is remarkable. Normally what happens is the vassal performs some kind of ritual to enact what terrible things will be done to him if he breaks the treaty. For example, you conquer my land and I'm like the little guy. I'm the vassal, you're the suzerain. And you say, I'm going to let you live, but you have to pay 80% of your revenue to me. And if you don't, you get your eyes gouged out, your hands cut off, your tongue cut out, and you get hung upside down in the sun until you bleed to death, for example. That would be a kind of fairly standard fate for a king who, who crossed the great suzerain past ashore, right? And so I'd conduct some kind of ritual which enacted my, the vassal's, demise if I were to break covenant. Here, you're exactly right. It's the suzerain. It's the great king who enacts his own 
demise. It's like, I'm, I'll take it if there's any covenant breaking goes on. I will be torn limb from limb. I will shed my blood. And we, we all said earlier, like, yeah, obviously God can't do that. Yeah, well, just hold on a second. What if, what if God were to become man in order to undergo a kind of fulfillment of this covenant ritual because the vassal had been unfaithful? If all of human history was a story of human unfaithfulness, wouldn't it be something wonderful if God himself placed himself in a position where he could actually shed blood on the ground, not a million miles from here, in order to reconcile himself with the people whom he has redeemed. So you're exactly right. Yeah, thank you. Um, That's very helpful. Notice another thing as well. Um, the, The rainbow, the first covenant sign, who is it assigned to? Noah? Who thinks Noah? (laughs) No. When I see the rainbow, remember? It's to himself. Look at it. When the bow is in the cloud, Genesis 9.16, I will see it, says the Lord, and remember my covenant. So, so far, that's the first sign. That's a sign for God to see, not for us. The second one, second big covenant ritual, this one. And again, it's the Lord, in this occasion, on this occasion, who uh, participates in it. He's the one who does the ritual. We often think of covenant signs like baptism and the Lord's Supper as being directed at us. And they're not, that's not wrong. But it's interesting that there's a sense in which also they're for God. We hold... We hold out our baptism, so to speak, to God and say, look, you washed me, you cleansed me. I I belong to you now. You can't let me go. And of course, the Lord won't. All right, we're done. We should quit. It's 18 minutes past eight. So, hope you've got no more questions. Um, Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up Genesis 17. And don't worry, we'll have plenty to talk about. Um, And... Uh, if you've got any other questions and stuff, feel free to hang around afterwards. Um, Mrs. Bennett, tidying the tables up. So this, if we can tidy the tables up and put the chairs out for the Oaks, they'd appreciate that. To those of you who are online, glad you could make it. hope it was a benefit to you as well. Let me pray, and then we will finish. Merciful Father, thank you again for your abundant kindness to us and for, as Pastor Shaw highlighted, for acting in a way that anticipates your willingness to take upon yourself the curses of the relationship or covenant that you've established with your people. So we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his grace and sacrifice for us. And we pray you teach us to live as those who are faithful and trusting in him. We pray in his name. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely.